Father, thank you for the good news of Jesus Christ. Thank you that we proclaim release to captives, freedom in Christ, release from the bondage of sin and the condemnation and its judgment. Father, we thank you that in Christ we have life and forgiveness. We have adoption as heirs of the King of the universe. Thank you for the joy with which we can proclaim these things. We know that your word accomplishes what you set it out to do, and so we pray that this week the scripture was taught and sung, communicated to these children. We pray that you would, for years to come, bear fruit through the ministry of Grace Bible and all of the folks that gathered here and served these children. We pray that you would be the one that would receive the glory, that you would cause some of these children and their families to come to trust in Jesus Christ, that you would cause them to trust in the reliability of your word, that you would cause them to grow in its truth as we strive to do now as we open it. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We've all, uh, no doubt, had moments in life when we thought about turning back. When we were going in one direction and it got hard for one reason or another and we wanted to just turn around and go back, go back to simpler times, go back to some point before a crisis, go back and to before we said something that we wish we hadn't said, words that we wish we hadn't spoken. If you're trusting in Jesus Christ, you probably know the feeling of being tempted back toward old patterns of sin, old behaviors that seemed to feel good at the time. The Old Testament has several remarkable scenes of, of the Israelites wanting to turn back, wanting to do exactly that, wanting to, to stop the direction they were going in and turn around. Exodus chapter 14, right after the, the, the release out of slavery in Egypt, God has done miraculous things. They have seen the plagues, they have seen the Passover, they have seen God's deliverance of them from out of captivity and out of slavery, and they are leaving Egypt, and there's a moment there where they feel like suddenly they are trapped and the Egyptians are chasing them, and it says in Exodus 14, they feared greatly and cried out to the Lord. They said to Moses, what have you done to us in bringing us out of Egypt? For it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. Just wanted to go back. Exodus chapter 16, they're hungry and they wished that they had been left in Egypt to die. In Exodus 17, it's thirst and they voice the same thing in Exodus 17. Why did you bring us up out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? Why can't we just go back? It seemed somehow now as if that was easier. The worst of the rebellion comes as they are just about to enter the promised land. God has been leading them and he has sent the spies into the promised land, they've come back with their report, and now the people are panicked at reports that there are large inhabitants in that land, and they are afraid. And Numbers chapter 14 says, Then all the congregation raised a loud cry, and the people wept that night. And all the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron. The whole congregation said to them, Would that we had died in the land of Egypt, or would that we had died in this wilderness? Why is the Lord bringing us into this land to fall by the sword? Our wives and our little ones will become a prey. Would it not be better for us to go back to Egypt? And they said to one another, let's choose a leader and go back to Egypt. 
It's a remarkable sentiment when you think about it, because that's not just let's go back to where we were and sort of start over again. That's let's go back and surrender. Let's go back and say we're here to be slaves again and to serve you as slaves. And we're now in a worse position because we've now come back and somehow said this is better than anything that, that God was leading us to. You open to Galatians chapter 4, we've been surveying the book of Galatians, and the, this portion of Galatians 4, this midsection that we're going to look at this morning, is really a lesson in pleading with people who are turning in the wrong direction. It is, it is a chance to see in the book of Galatians this appeal to people who are being tempted to turn in the wrong direction. We've talked about the book of Galatians as we've worked our way through it. We've used the theme freedom by faith to explain what what seems to be one of the the main gists of this book, and that is that faith comes by believing in Jesus Christ. Salvation is by faith in Him. And so this book of Galatians is a letter Paul wrote to largely Gentile believers in the churches of Galatia, and he he is warning them that you're being tempted now by false teachers to turn back from the way you were going. Don't do it. Paul had taught them the truth. He had taught them the gospel. Believe in the life, the perfect sinless life of Jesus Christ, his substitutionary death on the cross, and then his resurrection by which he conquers sin and death. Put your faith entirely in that. Believe in him and you will be saved. False teachers come in. They are ethnic Jews. They say to the Gentiles, listen, you want to believe in our Messiah, you need to become like us. So you need to obey the law. You need to go through the rituals of the law. If you want to worship our God, you're going to have to do it the way that we define the Old Testament law, the way we interpret it. Celebrate the feast and get circumcised and follow all the do's and don'ts. And maybe, maybe if you do it all, then somehow you might please God. You would satisfy him in some way and be accepted by him. And so far in Galatians, what we've seen Paul doing is largely instructional teaching, doctrinal type teaching, in which he's, he's gone through in the first three chapters in the beginning of four, just explaining salvation and taking them all the way back to Abraham and saying, even from Abraham, it was by faith that people were saved. Abraham put his trust in the promise of God, and that declared him righteous because of his Faith. And so he's, he's given some biblical history to say salvation has always been by faith, not by works. He also is teaching a correct understanding of the Old Testament law. If it's by faith, what's the purpose of the law? And he has taught that the law is to help reveal the holiness of God, but also so that we would see our sin, that we would see that we fall short and we are judged by the law. We are guilty in light of the law and we are condemned. And so the law shows us how desperately we need Christ. We need forgiveness of sins that only Christ can give. And then as we saw last week, Paul was teaching how the law enslaves sinners. By virtue of sinful human nature, the the condemnation of the law acts as almost a, a, a guard at a prison, like the bars on the cell, because it just keeps us enslaved. We are bound in sin because we are condemned by that law, and there's also that craving, that sinful craving to continue to do what we want to do and disobey and violate God's law. So to this point, largely doctrinal teaching, truth of the gospel, focusing on and exposing the error of the false teachers. He shifts a little bit here in Galatians 4 when we pick up here in verse 8. And this, this portion, Paul's tone is different. He's, he's the apostle who has come to them very authoritatively. Here is the gospel I preach to you. Don't move from it. 
Here is the error of the false teachers. He's exposing it. But here we see not only Paul the apostle, but Paul the shepherd and the brother. These are, these are fellow believers. They have professed faith in Jesus Christ. And Paul, we're seeing in this passage now a, a tenderness and a longing and a desire to lead them out of the confusion that they are in that has come by virtue of these false teachers. He is feeling this tremendous urgency to, to guide them out of that. And so this is Paul, the pastor and the brother in Christ, pleading with people who are turning in the wrong direction. And I would say to you that as we read this, it is a lesson for us in pleading with people who are turning the wrong way. Let's just read um, verses 8 through 11, Galatians 4, 8 through 11. Paul says, Formerly, when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those that by nature are not gods. But now that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God, how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world whose slaves you want to be once more? You observe days and months in seasons and years, I am afraid that I may have labored over you in vain. To give us some sort of guideposts as we walk through this passage, I've just kind of framed the outline in your bulletins around Paul's three questions in this passage. And here's the first one. How can you turn back? How can you turn back to things that are weak and worthless and submit yourselves to be slaves of these things? How can you turn back? This First question, Paul is really trying now to get to the core of the matter. If you, if you know God, and if you have believed the truth of the gospel, why are, you, why are you going in this direction, back toward works, back toward sin, back toward the slavery you were once in? For some reason, the ESV that I'm reading out of the English Standard Version misses the conjunction at the beginning of verse 8. You should have a but or a however at the beginning of verse 8 is in Paul's writing in the Greek. And this is one of those places where translators adding paragraphs and subtitles and all that doesn't always help us because if we read the flow here and we get the but or the however, Paul had just been talking about you are free in Christ. You have been made heirs by the gospel. You are sons and daughters of God and the Spirit testifies to that. But... Verse 8, but when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those that by nature are not gods. He's saying, you, you now know what it is to be heirs of the promise, to be forgiven, but you were once slaves. This, this stuff that I'm talking about, about you walking on this path as if you're going back towards slavery, is not unfamiliar to you because you and I have been there. We've experienced that. We, we walked in trying to please ourselves, trying to save ourselves by works. He says, you, before you trusted in Jesus Christ, you were already in spiritual bondage, condemned to sin and death. The law held, our, held us captive. And so what he's saying is, now, now that you have professed faith in Christ, now that you are a child of God, now that you are an heir of, of the promise, now you want to turn around? How can you do that? Verse 9, he uses a term that we saw last week in verse 3, but we didn't spend a lot of time on it, so I just want to come back to it because I think it's important. He says that you would be turning back to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world. There's a lot of discussion about what that means because he used that same term in verse 3. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. 
The, the, the Greek word that he uses there, the, the basic meaning of the word, most fundamental meaning is, is things that line up, sort of putting things in order, like you would have letters of the alphabet lined up. It develops in meaning to also mean um, sort of principles of life, how life works, how it all sort of lines up. But then it also comes to mean in the Greek understanding that that word describes basic elements of life, air, water, ground, sort of the basic elements around us, which the pagans in many sense worship. These were things that were areas of worship. And so it, it would seem like as he's using it here, and he'll use the same word in Galatians 2, these, and, and in Galatians 2 it's translated elementary spirits of the world, it appears there's a spiritual dimension to this. You were enslaved to these elementary principles, these, these sort of things that, that governed you in some way. Look at that and understand what he has just said. If you go back again to verse 6, those who are believers, because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. And so Paul is contrasting. There is the spirit of God. There is the Holy Spirit who seals you for the day of redemption. He is the one who comes and testifies in you that you now belong to God, that you are saved, that you are trusting in Jesus Christ, and so he's testifying in you that you now see God as Abba Father. But there are these elementary principles, this spiritual dimension to the world. We could probably see this in light of demonic powers, those things that the, the pagans worship that, that hold us captive, that tempt us, that lure us to sin that bind us to a works kind of salvation that says, I need to earn something before God. I, I, I can't trust in grace. I have to earn this. All of that, I think, fits when you look at verses 8 and 9, and he says, formerly, when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those that by nature are not God's. But now that you come to know him, or rather be known by God, how can you turn back to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world? You once were enslaved to these things that pretended to be like God, that seemed to offer you life and, and satisfaction. You once were enslaved to those things. They, they didn't provide eternal life. They didn't provide lasting satisfaction. They didn't provide forgiveness. But they sure felt good at the time, or at least you thought they did. And then you realized that they weren't really satisfying. And, and, and I think he has in mind here the idea of sort of the, the false gods that had power over you before Christ, you were trapped in this world system and the demonic powers that, that drive it, and, and you were caught in this. And now, he says, he describes them in verse 9 as weakened and worthless. And he can do that because now as believers in Jesus Christ, the power of Satan, the power of evil now has been disarmed. We are now filled with God's Spirit, and we can now choose to obey and so those principles that he's talking about, that, that demonic influence that seems to be that he's suggesting here, that's now been weakened. In fact, that word for worthless, when he says weak and worthless elementary principles, that word for worthless has the idea of begging. So the, the same spiritual deadness that we had before Christ the same temptations that seemed so powerful before Christ, they, they now still try to lure. They still, they still beg for us to go in that way and to choose sin. This is very much like Paul gives that description in Romans 6. Don't present yourself over to sin anymore to do its bidding. You now belong to Christ. Those things are still there, but for the believer, they are weak 
and worthless. They don't own you anymore. You are Christ's. You are free in him. So live differently. And, and all of that then prompts this, how? How can you walk back that way? You're not subservient to these things, so why would you, why would you even consider this path? The Galatian believers are being lured in that direction. Verse 11 says, or verse 10, you observe days and months and seasons and years. And so it seems very much like they are regressing to where now the, the Jewish teachers have taught them. You've got to obey all of the feasts and all of the ceremonies that are on the Old Testament calendar. You've got to adhere to, to everything. It's not saying that, that those things are bad or evil. We, we sometimes, we recognize the Passover and what it stands for and how it's fulfilled in Christ. We're not saying Passover is evil, but what he's saying here when he uses that word observe, that, that word in the Greek has the idea of being scrupulous about this. You, you are making days and seasons and, and feasts, you are making them so important. You are making them the focus as if they somehow earn you something. As if you think that by doing this and keeping this calendar, you are somehow earning God's pleasure in that way. He says, how can you go back to this? How can you not live in the freedom that you have in Christ? So let's apply this to ourselves. Are there ever times when following Jesus Christ seems hard? Seems hard to to obey, to follow after Christ, when living as a believer in the midst of a fallen world gets difficult, when, when maybe unbelieving friends or family criticize what you believe, how you act, what you do differently now. There are times when old habits sort of creep in and, and, and seek to lure us back to the ways that we acted and thought before Christ. Sometimes it's just just putting ourselves back in an environment where we surround ourselves with unbelieving friends or colleagues. We just suddenly get immersed in this environment and it, it, we just feel all of those same temptations to act like and, and, and be drawn back into sinful patterns that we once were, were part of our lives. At those moments, we need to ask ourselves, and by God's grace, we need brothers or sisters in Christ in our life, who will also ask us, oh, wait, how can, how can you go back? How can you go back down this path? How can you go, how can you let fear step in and remove faith? How can you follow this sort of sinful temptation, this evil, when, when Christ has died for you and you know the truth? How can you be lured back to that? Think of what you know about God. Think of what you've seen of his goodness. Should you really now be getting weak in faith and doubting his, his kindness? Think of where you've been. How can you go back? It's interesting that when Paul in verse 9, he corrects himself midstream. Verse 9, look at it again. But now that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God, how can you turn back? That's an interesting course correction Paul makes midway through that verse. How can you who know God, no, wait, rather, and it's a strong contrast here, but no, rather, actually, it's God knew you. The knowledge started with God. It is God who set his affection on you. It is God who chose you, who called you, who saved you from out of your sin. It is God who set his love on you. You were Remember all the description. You were enslaved to sin and under the condemnation of God. And God set his love on you. And God saved you. 
And that's what Paul's wanting the Galatians to think about as they're being lured down this road. The great God of heaven set his affection on you. He chose you. He knows you. How can you, how can you turn back as if somehow you're now going to perform your way into God's pleasure when God, when you were a slave, mired in sin, set his love on you? How do you think you can possibly do something now that would earn his righteousness, his stamp of approval? Verse 12. Brothers, I entreat you. By the way, here's, here comes the first command that we see in this whole book. Brothers, I entreat you, become as I am, for I also have become as you are. You did me no wrong. You know it was because of a bodily ailment that I preached the gospel to you at first. And though my condition was a trial to you, you did not scorn or despise me, but received me as an angel of God, as Christ Jesus. What then has become of your blessedness? For I testify to you that if possible, you would have gouged out your eyes and given them to me. Here's this question. What happened to the goodness of God that you experienced? When you came to faith in Christ, you experienced God's blessedness, God's goodness, and it was displayed in the evidence of your life. What happened to that? What happened to that experience that you had of the presence of God's Spirit in your life? If the first question that he asked, the one we saw before, how are you turning this way, was, was meant to, to get them to question their motives and what, what it was that was luring their hearts away, the second question is focusing on the goodness of Christ that they've already experienced. To just think about where, what, you know, what you've known and what you've experienced. And, and this is where he gets really personal. And, and what Paul does to illustrate what he means by this goodness is he talks about the sweet fellowship that he had with them. And, and what he does is essentially gives us all the reasons why that probably should have happened. I came to you, he says, in the midst of some kind of ailment. There was something going on in Paul's life that was not pleasing at that point, that, that wasn't winsome to other people. He was going through some kind of circumstances that were rough, facing some kind of sickness that, frankly, he says, they were a burden to you. Verse 14, though my condition was a trial to you. Paul's saying, when I came to you, something was wrong with me, something presumably physical was wrong with me, and I was... I was not easy to embrace. It, it, it would be possible, I think, at this point, we're conjecturing because he doesn't tell us exactly what went on. But understand, we know that he's already been through physical persecution. He's already been beaten and whipped. So Paul is dealing with whatever disfigurement, whatever suffering has come from what he's already experienced in terms of torture, persecution for Christ, and perhaps some other kind of physical ailment. He talks about the thorn in the flesh in 2 Corinthians 12. We often assume some kind of eye disease because he talks about them being willing to give their own eyes to him. So he bears the scars of that suffering. He's dealing with some kind of illness. And in ancient cultures, not unlike us today, we tend to make pretty quick judgments by appearance. Somebody comes and we look at what they look like and we look at their life and we sort of make some decisions about them. And, and, and I think when Paul says, I know I was a trial to you. In, in that culture, when, this, when an itinerant preacher would come around and his appearance was, shall we say, rough, and his circumstances were not good, he was being chased from one city to the other, at some point you stop and go, why do we want to follow this guy? 
I mean, if I'm going to follow somebody, I'm going to look at the, the TV preacher who's got the lavish lifestyle and all the money and say, well, don't, don't I want that? And Paul's saying, but, but you didn't. You saw me at this weak point, at this displeasing point. You saw me having a hard time in life, and, and yet you received me, and you loved me, and you cared for me to the point that you would sacrifice your own being for me. You would, you would do anything you can to try to help me in that situation. What's he talking about? That's what, when he says, what then has become of your blessedness what he's talking about is God did an amazing work in your heart. That is the supernatural power of God to cause a people to receive somebody who is in the midst of ailment and trial. They're not believers, and in comes this traveling preacher who doesn't drive up in a fancy car or a nice chariot or whatever it might be. He comes in looking like he has been beaten up, and they go, oh, we love this guy. We are listening to what he has to say. And Paul's point is that's the goodness of God. That's God that enabled you. That's his spirit at work in you that caused you to receive me like this. And God did that work that you didn't reject me. God changed your hearts. God changed your affections so that you embraced me. And that's his spirit inside of you. They, they saw in Paul, not some traveling itinerant minister, but what it says here, according to verse 12, is, that I also became as you are. They saw in Paul somebody who came sacrificially to serve them. Paul's desire was to come and live in the midst of them and to be like them and to come alongside them. Paul teaches about this in 1 Corinthians 9, how he makes it his ambition when he comes to a city to serve the people there, to understand their culture, to understand their context, to love them where they are, to not stand from a high place and preach down to them, but to come alongside them. And to be like them. In 1 Corinthians 9, he says, I have become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. I do it all for the sake of the gospel, that I may share with them its blessings. Without compromising the truth, Paul found ways to become just like the people he was serving. To come alongside them and experience life with them. And help them to see his empathy and compassion for them. So that, he says, they might find freedom in Christ. It's not, a, it's not a manipulation. It's not some tactical maneuvering. It is Paul understanding that the way I'm going to communicate to your heart is to come next to you and talk to you about your life and to see you where you are, but with the earnest prayer and desire that you would come to know Christ. And so he says in verse 12 that that's, this is his first command. I beg you, I entreat you, become as I am. Paul says, I'm a Jew. I've studied the law, I know the Torah, I respect it, but I am free from it. I am not under its bondage. I am trusting in Christ. I am not a slave to sin. I am a child of God, and all I want for you is to become like I am. And so that's why I came and lived among you. That's why I loved you the way I did, because I want you to know Christ. And so this blessedness that he's now saying, it feels like it's vanished, is the, the work of the Holy Spirit that changed them and transformed them and was testifying in them of their adoption as children of God. He says, we enjoyed this fellowship as brothers and sisters in Christ. And so the idea that you're, you're now being lured by these false teachings toward getting into rituals and thinking that somehow those are going to get you right with God, you are denying the very experience of God's goodness in your life. 
if you have tasted of, of the blessings of God, why would you turn back on that? Listen, here again, we, you and I need brothers and sisters in Christ who are willing to speak in our lives when we become ungrate, ungrateful and difficult, when we are not being obedient to Christ, when we are sort of going off in fear in our reaction and we're not responding in faith, when we are being lured back into sin, we need brothers and sisters who are alongside to remind us of the kindness of God. Remember the, the sweet work of God in your life? Remember the, the sweet fellowship you've enjoyed and how his spirit has been at work in you? you you've experienced the goodness of God. And that is so important in the hard moments when Satan is accusing us. Scripture says Satan is accusing the brethren day and night. Satan is, is seeking to, to make life hard and to say that you are not worthy of anything and, and that you are just caught up in sin. And, and in those moments when you are being tempted toward wrong and sinful thinking, we need voices that speak into our lives of the greatness of our God and the experience that we've had in him, the truth of what it means to fellowship with the Savior. We need to be reminded of our need for gratitude in those moments. Paul's modeling that. Is God's grace and goodness not enough for you now? Has he not satisfied you and loved you and cared for you and forgave you? Why would you turn from that? Verse 16, last part of the section we'll look at this morning. Verse 16, have I then become your enemy by telling you the truth? There's the third question. They make much of you, the false teachers, but for no good purpose. They want to shut you out that you may make much of them. It is always good to be made much of for a good purpose, and not only when I am present with you, my little children, for whom I am again in the anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. I wish I could be present with you now and change my tone, for I am perplexed about you. Third question. Because I am now speaking firmly to you in a tone that seems maybe even harsh to some degree, because I am now seeking to correct you, to stop you from falling into error, does that make me your enemy? That's his question. Because I'm now confronting you, now I'm your enemy? Remember what we, all, what we just read. We had this sweet fellowship. You embraced me amidst all of the circumstances and all of the things that you probably, humanly speaking, shouldn't have, and you loved me, and we served, and we, we fellowshiped together. And now that I'm saying something that's hard because I see you going in a path that you shouldn't go, now I'm your enemy? In other words, I think the question here is, are you going to judge what you will accept as truth based on how the message makes you feel? I mean, this is our culture. This is why the, the gospel is repulsive to many. It's why the truth of God's word is, doesn't make me feel good. And, and are you going to judge now the truthfulness of my words, Paul says, based on how you feel about them? And so he frames the question with a contrast. The false teachers are flattering you. They are telling you that you are great. You are doing the right thing because you're listening to them and you're, you're going to do your ceremonies and your feasts and you're getting circumcised. You're, you're, you're going through the rituals. You are just doing what they say to do. And I, remember what Paul said at the beginning of Galatians 3? Oh, foolish Galatians. I am standing in your face and I am saying, oh, this is foolish. What you are doing is, is wrong. And, and, and so you've got one that's saying, oh, you're, you're wonderful, keep doing this. And I am now trying to stop you from this man-centered slavery, man-centered salvation slavery that you're walking into. And because I love you enough 
to stand in front of you on the road that you're walking down and beg you to stop, that makes me your enemy? He says, that shouldn't be. That language in verses 17 and 18 when it says being made much of, they, they make much of you, we could probably translate that as, as they are zealous for you. If you put the word zeal in there, they are, they are zealous for you. Verse 18, it's always good to be zealous for a good purpose. What he's saying is the false teachers, sure, they are zealous for you because they are about accumulating followers. They, they want your adulation. They want you to be in awe of them. They want you to do what they say. They want to essentially put you back into bondage to what their interpretation of the law is. And so they are, they are zealous to cut you off from the real people of God and to bring you along as being their adherents and to obey their teaching. Paul says zeal can be a good thing if it's aimed in the right direction, but if this zeal is just aimed at, at flattering you to build numbers, it's evil. Don't fall for this. Look again at, at verse 19. My little children for whom I am again in the anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. I want to suggest to you this is one of the most important lessons in the book of Galatians. So if you've if you've checked out at any point this morning, come back in for just this in verse 19, all right? Because this is the one that I, I hope you take away. The false teachers were amassing followers. Paul says, I am laboring to speak truth to you, even hard truth that you may find difficult to receive. I am in anguish over this for one purpose. It's not about winning the argument. It's not about getting you on my side. It's not about having you be a Paul follower. I am doing this for one purpose, so that Christ might grow in you. Christ might be evident in you. I want you to be like Christ. And so I will labor, I will anguish, I will say hard things if need be, so that Christ is in you and you are like Christ. Friends, if, there, if there's one thing that we take away, I hope it's this. We are called to make disciples. It's our calling as believers in Jesus Christ. Go into all the world, preach the gospel, make disciples, teaching them to obey all that I have commanded. And I would suggest to you that, that here is Paul helping us to see what the measure of discipleship looks like. It is Christ being formed in the life of a person. It is them embracing Jesus Christ, knowing him, believing in him, growing in him, and looking more like him day by day so that the life of Christ is now evident in them. If you're a parent, this is, this is the front lines of what it looks like for you. That I am in anguish that Christ be formed in you. There are so many worthwhile sort of goals, right, that we would think about for our kids, good college, good career, good spouse, just, you know, hope, hope all of these things go. Paul's, Paul's giving us here in the kindness of God's word saying, above all else, anguish that Christ would be formed in them, that they would see Christ, that they would know him. And that they would, they would understand what it is to grow in Christ-likeness. If you've got a friend or a neighbor or coworker, or somebody you're seeking to reach with the gospel, here's the mark to aim for. Show them Christ in his word, in your actions, in your attitudes. Show them Christ so that they may see him and know him. Understanding that in all of this, God is the sovereign one. God is the one who does the, the, the work, the heart work that changes the heart and transforms the heart. 
But nonetheless, like Paul, we should be anguishing in labor so that we might see Christ formed in the hearts of other people. We're not, we're not trying to flatter them. We're not trying to win arguments with them. We're not trying to persuade them for the sake of going and saying that we persuaded that person. We are in anguish and labor for others because we want to see Christ in them because that's where freedom is. That's what the, this whole book keeps pointing us toward. It is for freedom that you have been redeemed by Christ. And we want to see Christ in them so that they can know the blessing of being conformed to the image of the Savior they will one day stand before. That is worth speaking the truth for. That is worth speaking hard truth for. That is worth standing in the road to those who are professing faith and who are walking in the wrong direction and saying, please, don't do this. Don't walk this direction. Trust Christ. Believe in the Savior. It is worth us calling people to turn back. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the gospel. Thank you for the Savior, Jesus Christ. Thank you for the hope and life and forgiveness that we have in Christ. I pray for my brothers and sisters here who are trusting in Jesus Christ. Maybe for some this passage has particularly sparked a challenge. Maybe they are being tempted in an area or struggling in an area to to keep moving forward in maturity and, and being tempted and drawn back to old ways and habits. I pray that your spirit would accomplish a good work through your word and through your people to come alongside and to recite and rehearse the, the good things that you have done. Help us to be a people who never tire or weary or get bored of speaking about how we have been redeemed, how we have been taken from out of slavery and adopted as sons and daughters of the living God. May we be filled with a gratitude that sounds forth when we are being tempted to turn back, when Satan would have us veer off course. Thank you that we have been set free and rescued and that we are now free to follow after Christ. May we be presenting ourselves to Christ for service to him, to honor him, and to show gratitude to him. Father, if there's anyone listening this morning who's not trusting in Jesus Christ as Savior, would you, in your grace and kindness, be that God who we read about who would know them, that you would set your affection on them, that you would open their eyes, that you would cause them to see the gracious beauty of the Savior Jesus Christ and his sacrificial death and his triumphant resurrection. Lord, thank you for the sweetness of the gospel calls us as a church, a body of believers, to be faithful to the task of making disciples, even when that means saying the hard things. It calls us to be bound by your truth, to speak them, to do so in love, in labor and anguish, because of our longing to see Christ glorified. It's in his name we pray. Amen.